More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to today's edition of the Rush Limbaugh Show podcast. Hey, greetings, my friends. Good afternoon to those of you in the eastern and central time zones. And good morning to those of you in the mountain and Pacific time zones. This is the Excellence in Broadcasting Network, Rush Limbaugh on Friday. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday. And, of course, Open Line Friday, whatever you want to talk about, have at it. Telephone number 800-282-2882. And if you want to send an email, lrushbo at eibnet.us. I got a note from the webmaster last night, actually from the administrator. There was so much email coming in that... The server was 20 hours behind processing it. 20 hours. I mean, you are over, and and the vast majority of it is not spam or junk because we have very sophisticated filters that take care of of all of that. Also, a, a program note reminder, the vice president, Mike Pence, We'll be appearing on the program today at 1.45 p.m. Eastern, uh, an hour and 40 minutes or so, roughly from now. And he'll be with us uh, for 15 or so minutes for the time he starts to the uh, to the end of the hour. Okay, I want to start with some audio sound bites from last night. I have been watching Fox News. Now, we've just learned this week, because of the release of transcripts from the committee hearings that were chaired by by Adam Schiff. We've just learned that all these Clinton people and Obama people, Clapper, Brennan, and Holt, that were running around claiming Trump colluded and they had evidence of it, Trump was a Russian agent, all of it was lies. They were testifying under oath that they'd never seen any of it. They'd never seen any evidence. They had no knowledge whatsoever that Trump colluded with Russia on anything. So it was all 
lies, public lies. And then we learned later that the CEO of CrowdStrike, now remember CrowdStrike, private sector firm that the DNC hired to forensically examine the server that was supposedly hacked by the Russians. Whenever anybody expressed curiosity or doubt over the allegation that the Russians meddled in the election, the answer was always they hacked the DNC server. That's what it was. That's the Russian meddling right there. They hacked the DNC server. And some of the emails in that server from John Podesta and Hillary Clinton and so forth ended up at WikiLeaks and all that. Well, we also learned that the CEO of CrowdStrike testified under oath that he had no idea who hacked that server. Not only that, he didn't even know if it had been hacked from outside. In fact, it looked like it hadn't been hacked. It looked like that it was an inside job of getting data off of that server at very rapid transfer speeds, like happened when you're you know, downloading or dumping to a thumb drive. Much faster speeds than you would get over an internet connection. So the entire, the entire story was blown to smithereens this week. Now you, as regular listeners here, have known for three years what BS this all was. So all this stuff this week was was confirmation for you. But to a lot of people, the Russians colluded. Trump helped them. Trump was a traitor. Uh, Trump was illegitimate. Uh, election was illegitimate. A lot of people in America believed it. And probably still do to a certain extent. But the point is that everything publicly stated about it is a lie. Everything publicly stated has now been documented to be untrue, including this assertion that the Russians hacked the DNC server. Remember Debbie Blabbermouth Schultz, who was at the time the chairman of the DNC, wouldn't even let the FBI see the server. They wanted to forensically examine it, find out what the hell happened. She said, no, you can't see it. And the FBI said, oh, okay, and went away. Then they hired CrowdStrike. And again, CrowdStrike CEO testifies under oath. They had no idea who hacked the DNC server. Found no evidence the Russians did it. We've learned this this week. It's been all over the news this week. Now, it hasn't been all over CNN. And it hasn't been all over the New York Times. Which means it hasn't been all over... but, But... Those outfits are not really news. They're left-wing activist organizations disguised as journalists. So I want you to hear the the way this stuff, this is just a lesson in how this stuff all works. The truth has been blown to smithereens. Or the lies have been blown to smithereens. The truth has now been revealed. And even before you get to any of this, let's not forget that the great white knight, Robert J. Mueller, the 19th, The guy that was going to find evidence that Trump had done all this dirty stuff with the Russians said, nah, after two years of a bogus investigation, it was unnecessary. Nope, can't find anything. It was just, it was an attempted coup. But I want to show you with a couple of sound bites how this stuff 
nevertheless gets perpetuated. Marie Harf was on Fox last night with uh, with Martha McCallum. They got two bites. Here's the first question. I watched this and I, I, I was screaming. The TV, I got hold of a cookie. I said, I want these two bites. This is just livid. It made me livid. Marie Harf. She was in the State Department during the Obama administration. So the question, there was a lot of shock. There was a lot of surprise. that Hillary Clinton had indeed lost the election. That Donald Trump was elected. Was there concern, Ms. Harf? That the Russia policy was going to be changed dramatically under the Trump administration. The, the, the question is, were you all in the Obama outgoing administration worried that the Russians were going to co-opt the Trump administration? For months, we had seen a hostile foreign country, the Russians, interfere in our election. They stole emails. They hacked into servers. Stop. They put- the tape. They did no such thing. We learned this week they did no such thing. And there she is, either purposefully lying or ignorantly continuing with the um, the narrative that they have established. For months, we had seen a hostile foreign country, the Russians, interfere in our... Nope. No, 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 no. We did... There still isn't any evidence that they did anything above and beyond what they normally do. The Russians had not one iota's impact on the outcome of the election. Not one. We don't even know that it was the Russians who hacked the server. And yet, here she is. Cue that back up to the top. Here she is saying, they stole emails. They hacked into servers. Here, listen to the whole bite. I'll, I'll try to shut up. During the whole thing, but it's really hard. For months, we had seen a hostile foreign country, the Russians, interfere in our election. They stole emails. They hacked into servers. They put them out at politically convenient times. And so we had seen months and months of this, and we were very disturbed by it. You saw intelligence information coming in that showed that there had possibly been some Americans who had been in contact with them possibly in coordination with them. And so the counterintelligence investigation that was done at the time was not about Russia policy. It wasn't about the fact that Hillary Clinton lost. It was about the fact that we were a country under attack and there were real concerns and real evidence that there were possibly some Americans who had been helping them. Folks, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, there's not a syllable of that that is true. Now, her her claim here, uh, what the purpose of the counterintelligence investigation was, we were a country under attack, real concerns, real evidence that there were some Americans who had been helping. There isn't any evidence that anybody, particularly the Trump administration, had been helping the Russians. If anybody had been working with the Russians, it was Democrats from the Hillary campaign. But this is just a classic illustration of how. A false narrative and a series of lies get established, and they continue, despite being blown to smithereens. Everything this woman said in this soundbite is demonstrably false. Is nowhere close to being true. Intelligence information coming in that showed there had possibly been 
Some Americans who had been in contact with the Russians, maybe coordinated. Well, they tried to make that stick with people like George Papadopoulos. Uh, but it, it was all made up. All this was was an investigation hoping to be able to create a crime. They wanted to be able to create a crime. The FBI and whoever else, Brennan and Clapper, who were trying to sustain this. Now, again, I don't know. I don't know Marie Harf. I don't know whether she literally believes this or or is she knowingly lying. It could go either way. There's one more question she was asked. Uh, Well, unfortunately, Marie... They didn't have any evidence that any Americans were helping the Russians. Uh, There was months of Russian interference going on. If Obama was so concerned about what he saw, why did he wait till after the election to slap these sanctions on the Russians? We certainly raised it privately with the Russians while it was happening. President Obama has said that. So has John Brennan and others. But we were very concerned that if we publicly slapped the Russians while it was going on in an aggressive way, that they would actually take further steps. And I should point out that before the election, we did announce that we had determined that the Russians had done some of the hacking. We did put a lot of the information out there. But the, the fact mm. remains that there was some evidence, right? We've talked no. about Michael Flynn a lot. Stop and the it. Co- now you get into Flynn. Now you're, now you're totally lying. There's no evidence, Marie. There never has been any evidence. The only question is, are you this dupable? Are you in on the conspiracy to spread this caca? I mean, it it just gets worse and worse and worse. But I'm only pointing this out to illustrate how no matter what truth is revealed, no matter what set of lies is exposed as fraud, they still live on. And this is why I say I don't think you should ever believe these people. The odds are whenever you're reading in New York Times or see Marie Harf say something, default reaction ought to be not to believe it. Let's go back. I want you to see some of Obama slapping sanctions on the Russians, talking to the Russians. We certainly did tell the Russians to stop it. This is when Obama said he got hold of Putin and said, you better stop it. You better stop it right now. But here's the truth of the matter. This is Obama, October 18th, 2016. It's before the election. And he's in the Rose Garden with uh, the Italian prime minister, joint press conference. And a Reuters correspondent said, Donald Trump is telling his supporters the election's rigged. He's asking them to monitor certain areas at election day. How concerned are you, O deity? How concerned are you about the potential for violence? And what about... After Election Day, are you worried the results of the election may be distrusted? Are you worried the Russians are going to affect the outcome? There is no serious person out there who would suggest somehow that you could even you could even rig America's elections, in part because they're so decentralized and the numbers of votes involved. There's no evidence that that has happened in the past or that... There are instances in which that will happen this time. Well, there came the truth. That was October 18th, 2016. And in that instance, Obama's right. The election is too fractured. It's 50 state elections. Then you break the states down to precincts and districts. There's no way. There's literally no way a presidential election could be rigged in the sense 
that they tried to make it look like it could by hacking the Democrat National Committee server and putting about putting out a bunch of unfavorable emails written by Podesta and uh, and and Hillary Clinton. So this remains a big bugaboo to me, folks. Um, I, I I think it remains the biggest scandal in American history, and it's still alive. It's still alive in the way we are being forced to deal with this coronavirus pandemic. And so I, whatever I can do to inform, educate as many people as possible to the ways and the techniques and the attempts that the left and the Democrat Party make, the better people will be informed to resist. Uh, it's just – it's – it's just, it, it's frustrating as it can be to me, you know. And I'm 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 not so naive that I I, uh, I I believe that everybody who lies ought to be caught and punished. I know it's you know part and parcel of American politics, but this is particularly egregious because of what the attempt was and what it still is. Anyway, I'll take a brief uh, timeout. We'll come back and continue right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Open Line Friday. Great to have you. Rush Limboy here, executing assigned host duties flawlessly. Uh, look at this. The uh, Chicom State Media is saying that they're going to interfere <laughs> in the 2020 election. They're mad. They're ticked off. The Chicoms are threatening to meddle in the upcoming U.S. presidential election as retribution for a flurry of American lawsuits seeking to hold the CHICOMs accountable for the spread of the coronavirus. The CHICOM Communist Party, quote, won't just strike back symbolically. We will impose countermeasures that will make Americans feel pain. This according to the Global Times, it's a CHICOM newspaper run by the regime. Every Chicom newspaper is run by the regime. The threats come as outrage grows over China's handling of the coronavirus outbreak and the subsequent global spread of the virus. Now, what? <laughs> the Chicoms try to interfere in our affairs every day. The Chicoms are trying to hack. The Pentagon's servers, they're trying to hack the NSA. The Chicoms are trying to get everything we do. We try to do the same to them. So the Chicoms coming along and threatening to interfere in the election is classic. It is setting up the American media as a bunch of fall guys. It is reaching out to certain percentage of the American people who believe the Russians interfered. The Chicoms want, it, want in on this. The Chicoms are sitting there. Well, they, they think the Russians are a bunch of pikers when it comes to computer hackery. And they're jealous the Russians are getting all this credit for hacking into our elections. The Chicoms are jealous and upset that the Russians are being touted as these indomitable computer hackers that screwed the American election, actually gave it to Trump when he didn't win. The Chicom's watching it. You want to see some meddling, you wait till we get started. And they're they're warning <laughs> they're going to do this if we don't pull back on some of these lawsuits. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like 
Sounds a lot like a bunch of blue state governors telling non-essential businesses that if they try to reopen, they're going to be crushed, which is exactly what is happening. A bunch of blue state governors are telling people in their states that if they violate any of these orders, that they're going to get crushed. Their business licenses will be pulled. Democrat judges might put you in jail if you don't do as instructed by the blue state governors. It's what leftists do, whether they're in China, whether they're in Russia, whether they're in Washington, California. They don't collaborate. They annihilate. They don't lift people up. They flatten you. We'll be back. All right. Welcome back. It's Open Line Friday. We always try. We don't always succeed. But we always try to get phones in in the first hour on Open Line Friday. And so we're going to go to Bedford, Texas. This is Jeff. Jeff, I'm glad you called, sir, and welcome. Thank you, Rush. I just want to say thank you. It's a real honor to speak with you. You're in our hearts and prayers, and just thanks for everything you do. Thank you, sir. Um, Very much. This morning, you, you've talked about Marie Harf and some of the things that she was uh, spewing out yesterday evening. And I just happened to notice she's she's on the uh, the noon show with Harris Faulkner, kind of spewing the same stuff again. And wait a minute! Become, wait a minute! Wait! A minute. How in the hell can you watch that show when this show is on at the same time? Well, I, I was going to the kitchen to get something to eat, and I happened to see it. Ah, uh, okay, I got. I listen to you religiously, uh, but but I do keep Fox on. In, I'm in just kidding. Room. I'm just. I know. I know. Uh, television's but, always on in the background. That's a, when you, if you've got Fox on in this show, on I guarantee you the volume is up on this show, and you're just watching <laughs> Fox silently. I guarantee it. I know how this works. Well, watching TV is here. passive passive viewing. Well, I happened to see her, and and you just previously had mentioned her name and I saw her, so I turned it up and and heard the exact same thing. And I just wanted to express my frustration. It just seems anymore like Fox is really the last source out there that we can go to. Uh, One American News isn't bad, but, um, you know, it's just getting frustrating to see them drifting farther and farther to the left. And, uh, you know, I get fair and balanced, but I, I... I'm just frustrated, and I just wanted to express that. I'm sure there's others out there that are feeling the same way, and um, I'm just wondering what your view is. That there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do about it. Uh, True, Marie Harf is on Fox, and she lies through her teeth. Uh, She was telling these Russian lies even after the truth had come out last week and early this week. She just... Fox has made a decision that they're going to have voices from across the political spectrum. And whatever they say, it's the First Amendment, it's freedom of speech. It's going to be up to the viewer to weed through it, make their minds up what they want to believe and what not. Fox is simply presenting all options. The difference is that you won't find a Marie Harf equivalent on CNN or MSN. You will not find a conservative comment. Not, not, not that it would make you watch... CNN or MSNBC anyway. Uh, but you know how it is with conservatives. They have to. They think they have to go way out of their way to prove they're not biased and that they're not racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes, and all that rot. And so they bring in people like Donna Brazil and uh, Marie Harf and, and what have you to otherwise pollute and corrupt 
those uh, those shows. And there's nothing that's going to change it. It's an operating strategy, uh, operating policy at the management, you know, upper levels of management at uh, at Fox. Jeff, I'm glad you called. Thanks much, Jerry in Atlanta. Great to have you, sir. Hello, you're on Open Line Friday, and you're up next. Thanks, Rush. I appreciate all you do. Hey, I, I, I want to paraphrase a comment um, or something I read about 20 years ago and to share your thoughts if you think it applies today. And that is, uh, the, the, the comment was, science is great, but scientists are dangerous. And they're human, and sometimes they'll act like a cheap defense lawyer rather than a pure speaker and seeker of the truth. And it just made me think, and I was just kind of curious if you thought that maybe applied today. So what what is the what is the question that you're asking me specifically? Um, in terms of, and I don't I don't want to say like Doctor um, Doctor Fauci this, but when studying this coronavirus, there are facts, there are inferences that you can make analogies to other viruses, and then there are opinions, and those are the only three things out there. And I think we're hearing a lot of opinions that are be take are being taken as facts. Um, and I'm just was kind of curious if you thought maybe they're not saying um, and stressing out that, hey, these are the facts versus this is my opinion or this is my thought on what might happen. Well, that makes sense. Uh, no, but let me let me answer it anyway. Uh, the best way to understand science today is that it has been corrupted by the left. The left has pretty much corrupted everything it's touched purposefully. It's not just happened because a bunch of people who are liberals decided to go into quote-unquote science. It's that they actively decided to do it for the express purposes of advancing the liberal political agenda. To to leftists and liberals and communists and socialists, all that matters is the agenda and advancing it. It's the number one objective for being alive. Alive. They're not interested in persuading hearts and minds that they're correct. They're not interested in debates. They're not interested in having to persuade people that their view is correct by having a superior view and having a more persuasive way of presenting it. They demand that you accept it or else. They do not want any opposition. They do not want any uh, obstacles into in, into the impl- implication or the um, implementation of what they believe, and so it's all a game. Pretty much everybody in Washington government is a leftist and a careerist, and there are exceptions, but that's the most of them. Uh, science has been set up as infallible. You can't dispute it. You can't disagree with it. In fact, let me find there's a soundbite here that, that will make partially the point. If I can find it, it happened last night on um, uh, Shannon Bream's show. Let me see. If it, here it is. Grab soundbite number 17. Shannon Bream last night had the Peace Corps medical director. The Peace Corps. Now, what, what is the Peace Corps? The Peace Corps is some government. JFK established this thing. A bunch of young people run around the world spreading peace. And now they've got a medical director. They're just a bunch of you know left-wing hikers. 
They go hike in Africa. They go hike in uh, India. They go hike. And they run into people. They spread peace. They wear khaki shorts. They run around with backpacks. They're hikers. And it's called a Peace Corps. So that you think the work is wonderful and good and you cannot object to it. Now they've got a they've got a they got a medical director. So last night Shannon Bream is talking to the medical director for the Peace Corps about my comments on the guidelines that have been set up for reopening the economy and how they keep moving. They keep moving the goalposts on us. And here is how that soundbite sounded. I want to play a little bit of what Rush Limbaugh had to say about this today, about how people are feeling like the goalposts keep moving. Here's what he said. So we had to flatten the curve and follow the data of flawed models. We need more testing. So we got more testing. It's not enough. We need even more. Now that's not enough. We need antibodies. Oh, all that doesn't mean anything anymore. Now we need a vaccine. There may never be a vaccine. All right, doctor, I know that you want to keep us safe, but you can hear the frustration in his voice. I certainly could. I love Rush. This is the best conservative journalist probably ever. I looked today on his bio. I can't find out where he went to medical school. Uh, not sure he has a medical degree. And the goalposts have moved, Shannon. What we've done is we've learned a lot more about the disease. So you see, I am immediately disqualified for having any kind of opinion about what he later acknowledges is true. The goalposts are moving. But I don't have a medical degree. I don't wear a lab coat. I don't, um, I don't have any kind of health expertise on my resume. <laughs> Look at this. There's a Rose Garden ceremony right now, and Dr. Fauci standing behind Trump for the first time wearing a mask. I know why the media jumped on it, but the mask is a symbol of fear. They're using the mask as a symbol of fear. And now Dr. Fauci, the world's foremost authority, obviously he's got to be scared. It's got to be worse than Dr. Fauci thought. He's wearing a mask. That's the message conveyed by the phone. Anyway, my point is, they're moving the goalposts. They're doing everything they can in the blue states to keep this economy shut down. I pointed out it's immediately disqualified because I didn't go to medical school. I'm just, folks, look, uh, I'll try to make this as simple as I can. When it comes to science, science in climate change, science everywhere has been corrupted. Every government institution has been hijacked over the years. It didn't just happen yesterday. It's been going on my whole life. To the point now that the administrative state exists to thwart personal liberty and freedom and conservatism and advance the notions of gigantic big government and authoritarian control that that conveys. And they have taken over field like science, where you can't dispute it. You can't dispute what Dr. Fauci says. You don't have a medical degree. And even if you did, you wouldn't be allowed to dispute Dr. Fauci. But he's not alone. I mean... You can't dispute the climate change. A consensus of scientists. A consensus of science right there. You can't disagree. Or if you do, nobody should listen to you because you're a plebe. Well, there's no consensus in science. It's not up to a vote. So again, it's just something to be originally, inherently doubtful and suspicious of when a bunch of government scientists or government anything 
tell you things. Don't believe it at first. Wait for it to be confirmed or true. Because I'll guarantee you all it's about is advancing the liberal Democrat, what is now socialist, agenda. All right. The uh, the Rose Garden press availability today, whatever this is, the president's announcing uh, Operation Warp Speed. Uh, and he said, for those of you in Rio Linda, that means it's big and it's fast. Well, he didn't say for those of you in Rio Linda, but he... He said it means big and it's fast. And it's about, he's appointing some czar to come up with a coronavirus vaccine, he hopes, by the end of the year. Going to be working on it very rapidly, very quickly, have been working on it. Feels really good that it's going to happen sooner than anybody thinks. Hopes to get it done by the end of the year. Uh, in addition, new therapies, therapeutic uh, advancement treatments, in other words. So the uh, the effort here, the White House is engaged in to uh, send the signal that they're on top of this. They are not relaxing or wasting any time and are dead serious about the notion of a vaccine. The vaccine, that's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing to commit to. This is the second time the president has said he hopes they can get one done by the uh, by the end of the year. That, that that would be fabulous if something could actually happen. Here's uh, here's Wade in Clearwater, Florida. Welcome, sir. You're next at Open Line Friday. Hi. Uh, thank thank you, Raj, and um, it's a pleasure speaking with you. And my prayers are going out for you, my friend. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> yes, I want to um, you know just talk about the left narrative of. Uh, social distancing and delaying the, you know, the reopening of the country. And I honestly believe that uh, they're trying to delay the the rallies that Trump is holding, is generating such a momentum and uh, just, you know, a big um, a thrill with everybody. And I think they've just done that to slow it down because they got to do something to stop it. Well, I, I don't think that's the sole reason that they are uh, keeping the country shut down in these blue states. Uh, but if, if you could you could fold it into the overall reason, I mean, they they want to stop Trump. Period. They want Trump defeated. Their dream would be to still get Trump thrown out of office before the election. And make no mistake, that is an active, ongoing objective. That if they thought they could achieve and accomplish, they'd go for it, even though the election is just a few, relatively short months away. But barring that, they want to beat Trump in the election in November, and they're going after the economy. The problem is that the latest polling data says that most Americans are not blaming him for the economy. Majority of U.S. residents do not blame Trump for the stunning loss of American jobs since the coronavirus hit. And it's one of their polls. It's not one of ours. The latest Economist, YouGov poll, shows that just one-third of the country blame Trump. Most of them are Democrats. So they're not gaining any ground in this at all. Then Pelosi keeps coming up with these ridiculous, never going to see the light of day, panacea bailout bills. They are designed to be defeated. 
the way they're promoted. Look at all the goodies the Democrats want to give you. Look at all the help and all the assistance and all the benefits that Democrats want to give you. And then mean Mr. Orange Man comes along, along with that reprobate Mitch McConnell, and they say, ain't happening. Dead on arrival. That's what they want. They want to be able to tell the American people that, that Trump, McConnell, Republicans want them in pain. Don't want you to get any help. But Pelosi's legislation is ridiculous. It's embarrassing. It doesn't have a chance. It, In fact, it is so bad, it might not even survive a vote among Democrats in the House now. That's how bad that bill is. But I'll guarantee you, this, this latest polling data, the Democrats are going to look at this and are going to throw their hands up in so much utter frustration. They are keeping their blue states locked down. Hell, this idiot Cuomo just announced that New York is going to be shut down now through the middle of June. He was going to lift some of the stay-at-home stuff tomorrow. Well, today. Now he's announced it's going to be extended another month. It just it's, it's asinine. These people are... I don't think they understand the damage they are doing to themselves. Particularly this, this Andrew Cuomo, folks, you got to be very careful here. I have to be very careful. We're dealing with somebody. I don't, I don't care what, it's just not that smart. It's not that he's a dyed-in-the-wool liberal Democrat. He's just not very bright. And he is engaged in policy implementation here. If he's not careful... He is going to destroy and wipe out the Manhattan commercial real estate market. And with that, he's going to destroy half of the tax base of the state of New York. Open line Friday, Rush Limbaugh and EIB Network. Dr. Fauci, positioned right behind President Trump's left shoulder, Wearing that, he's wearing a gigantic mask. It, 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 looks, it looks like Dr. Fauci has been muzzled. He's, he's not going to like the image this conveys. Welcome back to the Fastest Three Hours in Media. It is the Rush Limbaugh program on the one and only Excellence in Broadcasting Network, where we meet and surpass all the expectations of everybody in the audience every day. This is Friday, so... Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday! Which means that you can bring up anything you want. And you can sound as incoherent or coherent as you want, as you bring it up. It's a one day a week where you don't have to bring something up that I care about. We require that Monday through Thursday. After all, it's my show. I don't want to sit here and be bored. But I take that risk every Friday. Telephone number is 800-282-2882. And the email address, elrushbo at eibnet.us. So the president's... Well, I guess you could call it a rally. It's a... It's a ceremony. It's not a ceremony. 
It's a it's a it's a it's an announcement availability. He's announcing essentially Operation Warp Speed, which is the administration's official announcement of the objective to find a vaccine for the coronavirus by the end of the year. And he has appointed a former executive from Glaxo Smith Klein of pharmaceutical company to head up the effort. In addition, he got some military people in there, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, they're all making trips to the microphone to speak and to thank the president, talk about the the great leadership, the great motivation uh, that he is providing in this effort. They just, and, and standing behind the president, it, it, this cannot be an accident. They stage these things. And standing behind the president as the president speaking at the microphone, uh, behind the president as, as, as he's standing, his left shoulder, is Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is wearing one of the biggest masks I have ever seen in my life. It goes all the way from the bridge of his nose almost down to his tie knot. Just about an inch of skin there on his neck that uh, that is exposed. And it, I mean, just a casual observer, when the president's speaking, the only other person in the camera shot is Dr. Fauci. And it looks like he's being muzzled. You can't read his facial expression. You know, Dr. Fauci has said, vaccine, well, may never be a vaccine. Uh, maybe 12 to 18 months at the outside. May ne- Fauci's standing there listening to this commitment to come up with a vaccine by the end of the year, which is six months from now, seven months. And I would love, you can't, he's, he's not rolling his eyes or doing, he's not, and he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't engage in a, in a public display of doubt like that. But um, still, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating shot. Uh, they keep moving the goalposts as to when we can reopen. First, they said we had to flatten the curve. We flattened the curve. They said, well, that's not enough. Now we got to do X. Well, I got to have more testing out there. So now we got more testing in any country in the world. That's still not enough. We need to do this. And so when we did the next thing and finished that, that's still not. We need it. We, need, we, we can't go out till there's a cure. We can't, we can't open up till there's a vaccine. So at every stage where they have said we could relax some of these restrictions, we've met those requirements, and they still, the proponents of the lockdown want to stay locked down. Now, uh, there's an interesting statistic coming out of um, out of Georgia today. This is a, it's a tweet of a chart by Eric Erickson. And I'm not, I'm not going to put the chart on the Ditto Cam. It's impossible to read this thing. It'd be too small on the screen. And it's, I can, I can describe the chart better than what the chart shows. Bottom line is, you know, Georgia's one of the states that's opened up. Georgia opened up early. There was incredible pressure on the governor, uh, Kemp, not to do it, to change his mind. He stuck to his guns and opened up. New daily cases in Georgia are going down 
even as the testing increases. That, folks, is phenomenal. It should be the exact opposite. The more you test, the greater the number of people you will find who have the virus. Not all of them feeling the symptoms, many of them asymptomatic. But remember when the whole subject of testing came up, everybody said there's a phenomenon that you're going to have to adapt to. As we start testing, the number of cases is going to skyrocket. We don't. We, the only way we know how many people have the virus now is if they show up to the hospital. But if we start randomly testing people outside the hospital when they're not suffering any symptoms, we're gonna we're gonna find a lot more people that have become infected. Now, as that happens, the mortality rate plunges because the number of deaths are what they are. There's no test. Uh, for death, there's actual death and not death. And if people die, and if they attribute the death to the COVID virus, that's a static number. It changes every day as they change the count, but it still is is a static number. It does not change with testing. So as more people are found to be infected, the mortality rate plunges because the denominator stays the same, and the numerator skyrockets. So you have an ever bigger universe of people who have the disease to compare against the number of people who are dying from it. Now, what's what's remarkable about what's happened here in Georgia is that as they ramp up testing, the number of cases in Georgia, is going down. Now, you would think that this would be huge news. You remember how the increase in tests was supposed to reveal an increase in cases that otherwise would have been missed. In other words, the reason for testing is to find out the people have got this disease that we don't know have it. And we got to test and we got to find out so that we can keep people safe. We got to find out if you have it, for example, so we can limit your contact with people. We have to find out if you have it so we can keep people from having contact with you. We got to test. We got to test. We can't open up till we test. We need more tests. And we now have more tests than anybody in the world. Now they complain and gripe to Trump for pointing that out. The number of new daily cases in Georgia is flat. It's infinitesimally small compared to the number of people who are being tested. This goes against everything we've been told about how this is going to work. And all it does, aside from conveying really fascinating good news is to tell us once again that there isn't a singular foremost authority on this who, more than anybody else, knows what they're talking about. Because I'm telling you, folks, as you start testing, it should be axiomatic, the number number of, 
reported infection should be skyrocketing. And it isn't in the state of Georgia, a state which has opened up. Now, let's go to another state which hasn't. And this would be the state of uh, Michigan, where the governor there is drunk on her newfound authoritarian powers. The Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, now is having a tough time with the American legal system. Because the American legal system doesn't take kindly to dictators. This is a story, PJ Media by Megan Fox. And the headline, Lockdown Lawsuit, Doctors Hit Gretchen Whitmer with Lawsuit Over Medical Time Bomb. Earlier in the week, she appeared to be losing a very public fight with 77-year-old Carl Mankey, who continues to defy her orders to shut down his barbershop, even after losing his license to operate without a hearing. He's still cutting hair, and the sheriff won't stop him. The governor has singled out a, a lone barber, taken away his license, ordered the sheriff and other authorities to go in and make him stop it. They won't do it, and he won't stop. A judge slapped the governor, Governor Whitmer, down when she tried to get a restraining order against this barber, 77 years old. The judge ruling to hear him out in court. Megan Fox writes, I would have paid good money to have been in the room when she was served with a new lawsuit brought by doctors and one patient claiming that her draconian lockdown orders have created a medical time bomb for patients who were awaiting elective surgeries and now cannot get them. And here's the upshot of this. And let's go back to Georgia. Georgia has opened up, not fully, but partially, Testing has increased rapidly. They are not finding a concomitant number of increase in cases. The number of cases is remaining flat. As more and more people are tested, it's, it, it's fabulous news. But in Michigan, medical providers are on the brink of financial ruin facing extreme revenue shortages caused by Governor Whitmer's order, which has forced the postponement or cancellation of so-called non-essential procedures. That's in the lawsuit filed by the uh, Mackinac Center Legal Foundation and a private law firm, Miller Johnson. Thousands of healthcare workers across Michigan have been furloughed. Or laid off. Now, in addition to the economic devastation, the governor's order has left hospitals and patients facing a dangerous backlog on procedures that will create a public health catastrophe of its own, said Dr. Randall Baker, general surgeon, president of Grand Health Partners, one of the plaintiffs in Grand Rapids. Dr. Baker said this whole this whole elective procedure thing. And we can't do it. It's a time bomb. There's no good reason to have a ban on elective surgery anymore. This is now a significant health problem for the people of Michigan and our patients. I've already had one patient attempt suicide. It's a very serious attempt. Another pull quote from the story. Graphics depicted that while Governor Whitmer's administration 
anticipated 220,000 patients being hospitalized without social distancing efforts, there have only been 3,000 hospitalizations as 27th of April. He's out there predicting, like all these other people, out there predicting massive doom and gloom, and they have been so far from being correct that it's laughable. Less than 1.4% of the projected COVID-19 hospitalizations have occurred. Less than 1.4% of what they predicted. And still, elective procedures in hospitals are prohibited by order of the governor. I mentioned in the previous hour that if, if Governor Cuomo's not careful, he's going to ruin the commercial real estate business in New York. You know, you know what's happening right now in New York? Because of the stay-at-home order being extended and because of work from home, a bunch of people, it's happening in San Francisco too. The tech company, Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, they've all shut down their primary campuses in Silicon Valley, in uh, places like uh, Cupertino, some of the other cities, and people are working from home. And what these people working from home are realizing, they don't need to pay exorbitant San Francisco rent. Because they don't need to live there anymore to do their jobs. It's been established. They haven't been going to the office since March. Same thing's happening in New York. People that live in Connecticut who commute to Manhattan every day realizing they don't have to go back to Manhattan ever to do their jobs. And if you don't have to go back to Manhattan, you don't have to live in Connecticut. And you don't have to pay massive Connecticut taxes. And you don't have to share the tax burden with New York. And then if you're not going into Manhattan for your job, the company doesn't need to be renting all that commercial real estate space. If these people are not careful, these governors, they're going to destroy the essence of what the blue states are. They're going to destroy these urban areas where massive blocks of Democrat voters live. And this massive block of Democrat voters is going to scram That ain't good news for us, because we're one of the places they're going to scram to. But it's not going to take long for all these people to realize they don't have to commute from Connecticut to Manhattan. The businesses to realize we don't need to rent all this business office space. And then the people like it's like the, the Tech Valley people, the Silicon Valley people, employees, they don't have to pay $3,000 a month rent in San Francisco now. They can pack up and move to Idaho. They can pack up and they can move to Hawaii if they want and still work for Facebook or Twitter or whatever because it's now been established. They don't have to be in the office. And the longer these companies, not just tech, the longer these companies in these blue states make it clear as a bell that they can function without having a staff come into the office every day. These governors are screwing themselves in ways they can't even see yet. And you know why? It's because they're typical liberal Democrats. They think whatever pain that they inflict on people, the people will take it and accept it and deal with it and still keep coming back for more, as in tax increases. 
They can never get it through their heads that people will find a way around having to pay them. And it's the same thing that's being set up to happen here. This guy, Cuomo, may destroy Broadway. The theater business. He may destroy the restaurant business that lives off of the Broadway theater business. All the while thinking he's some brilliant savior of people by keeping the stay-at-home order in place. I got to take a break. We will be back. I get back to the phones here quickly, but I, I want to play a soundbite for you. President Trump uh, at the White House Rose Garden just moments ago talking about Operation Warp Speed, the attempt to get a vaccine developed by the end of the year. Now we're combining all of these amazing strengths for the most aggressive vaccine project in history. There's never been a vaccine project anywhere in history like this. Of course not. And I just want to make something clear. Never. It's very important. Vaccine or no vaccine, we're back. There we go. And we're starting the process. We haven't seen anything like this in a hundred and some odd years. 1917. Yeah, like ever. But you fight through it. And people sometimes, I guess, we don't know exactly yet, but it looks like they become immune, or at least for a short while and maybe for life. But you fight through it. There he is. He's alerting, he's alluding to herd immunity. It's the last thing that Dr. Fauci wants to hear. So Trump dances around it. While Fauci can't say a word because he's muzzled in his gigantic mask, standing uh, standing right behind it's, it's probably unfair of me to characterize it that way. It's just how it looked. You know, it's all of it. Before we get back to the phones, very quickly, grab somebody number 26. The, um, the subject of the mask, a lot of people at the Rose Garden ceremony today were wearing masks. The scarf queen was wearing a mask. By the way, the scarf queen's scarf went all the way down to her knees today. Did you see that? Well, it did. I mean, I'm sorry for pointing it out, but it it did. And in Fauci's mask, uh, looked like a bib. And then uh, a bunch of other people wearing masks. The president was asked about it by uh, CNN InfoBay. Mr. President, can you just clarify, why are some of you wearing a mask and some of you are not? We've all been tested. I've been tested. We've all been tested and we're uh, quite a distance away and we're outdoors. So uh, I told them, I gave them the option. They could wear it or not. So you can blame it on me, but I gave them the option. We could wear it or not. Right. So there you have. So Mike Pence will be up here in about 10 minutes at 1.45 p.m. And, oh, a program note. Folks, it's, uh, it's, it's back to the, the treatment rigors for me on Monday and Tuesday. So I'm going to be out Monday and Tuesday. We have guest hosts, uh, Mark Stein and Ken Matthews. And, look, it's always possible if something happens that, that I'll be out Wednesday, too. So, but the, the intentions Monday, Tuesday, 50-50 on Wednesday. We'll see how things go. Here is uh, Brian in Athens, Georgia. We head back to the phones. Great to have you, sir. Hi. Hey, Rush, big thrill to talk to you. Speak about the curve. And I was told to tell you that I have a science background. When we were told about mitigation, the authorities never said, if we mitigate, less people get the virus. They never said that. They said we will not, they said, they didn't say we're going to have a smaller curve. They said we are going to flatten the curve. If you flatten the curve, you're changing the shape of it, and the peak gets smaller. But the wave gets longer, 
at least twice as long, and and uh, the peak's longer, and the wave is longer. Right. But the area under the curve doesn't change. So that means the same amount of people get the virus one way or the other. They just get it in a very short period of time if you don't mitigate. And if you do mitigate, the same number of people get it, but it's over a much longer period of time. The wave lasts longer with mitigation. Right. All of that is true. So the question then becomes, well, then what was the point of flattening the curve? And the reason to flatten the curve was to make sure the hospitals were not overrun, to make sure that we kept the number of people being infected and suffering the ravages of the disease was spread out rather than happening in a concentrated period of time so as to make sure our hospitals and ICU units uh, were able to handle. That, that's why in New York, Trump sent the Navy ship up there to the harbor. And that's why the corpse, as Obama pronounces it, the corpse of engineers uh, built a field hospital in Central Park. And that's why they turned a Jack, a Jacob Javits uh, Convention Center into a hospital is because they thought they're going to be overrun. Now, the problem here is that there was a lot of deception involved and a lot of people who were advocating flattening the curve mitigation, you stay home, you don't go out, you keep six feet of distance between you and everybody. Many people thought that was a way of stopping the virus. Many people went along with it because they thought, because they were deceived and misled that this is how we're going to stop the virus. And flattening the curve was never going to stop the virus. As Brian said, all it was going to do was extend the time over which people got the virus. As a means of illustration... Let's say you hear them say you've got to stay home and you can't go out. You've got to keep six feet of distance. You do this and you won't get the virus. So you do it. You don't get the virus. But someday is going to come, you're going to leave. You're going to leave the house or you're going to go out or whatever. And the virus is still going to be out there until there's a vaccine. So you can shelter for six months. It doesn't mean you're not going to get the virus unless you stay sheltered and do not come in contact with anybody who has it. And that's not reasonable to expect anyway. But there was a lot of deceit. They were, they were honest about it, too, but there was a lot of deceit here. They had a lot of people. They wanted this shut. The, the, folks, how many people do you think when this shutdown began thought that it was going to be a multiple three or four month thing? I'll bet you that not. I'll bet it wasn't a majority. I'll bet a majority thought it was temporary, two, three weeks. To get a handle on this thing, slow it down, come up with ways to deal with it, and we open back up. I'll guarantee you that when this thing was shut down, they did not think it was going to be shut down until September. Maybe some did. I mean, there's all kinds out there. But I, I, I think there was. there's always been so much... Um, a little, a little deception uh, in in parts because they need. If if there's a government policy that we're going to shut down, and that you're going to mitigate, and you got to stay home, 
and you don't go out and you don't get within six feet of other people, they've got to find a way to make that happen. Short of sending the cops out, knocking on every door. The way to do that is to scare the heck out of you and to mislead you. Mislead you into thinking that kind of behavior, following the wishes of the authorities, will provide the, the fastest cure and the fastest route to the solution. So they, they had to find a way to make people compliant with their desire to flatten the curve. It turns out it wasn't even necessary. The hospitals weren't overrun. Even in New York, they didn't use the external hospital beds that were built. They didn't use the hospital ship that the Navy sent in there, Trump sent in there. They didn't use the Central Park beds. They didn't use the Jacob Javits Center that was converted to beds. Anyway, I'll take a brief break. We'll do that and come back and be joined shortly thereafter by Vice President Mike Pence. So don't go away. Open line Friday, Rush Limbaugh behind the golden EIB microphone. Here we have the, uh, we're waiting for the Vice President to be with us any moment. The Chairman Democrat National Committee, Tom Perez, this is a uh, Breitbart story, says blame Trump for public school failures in the fall. Says blame Trump if the public schools fail to reopen. Yep, be Trump's fault. A report at Education Week noted that Perez condemned Trump, Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, during a virtual conference on Wednesday that the DNC hosted. So this is uh, blame Trump for the economy, blame Trump Herbert Hoover, blame Trump. And is like I said, the latest economist, YouGov.poll, a majority of U.S. residents do not blame President Trump or his administration for the loss in jobs or the economy in general. Uh, we'll have more on that, but we are now joined by Vice President Mike Pence. Have him for a few minutes here before the end of the hour. Great to have you back, sir. It's always a pleasure. Rush Limbaugh, it's great to be back on the program. And uh, when the president and I were catching up this morning, he wanted me to send his very best regards to you. I appreciate that. I, 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 everybody's being so great. It's, um, it's, it's really it's warming, my, uh, warming my heart. Uh, I need to ask you, we had watched a little bit of the president's uh, Rose Garden ceremony today on you the, the vaccine. How realistic is this, Mr. VP, a vaccine by the end of the year? Well, we think it we think it is very possible. And what uh, the American people saw today uh, with the announcement of uh, of Operation Warp Speed is just as the president has done from the very beginning of the coronavirus is we're going to we're going to continue to bring the full weight of the federal government, but also the ingenuity and creativity uh, of uh, American researchers and our incredible pharmaceutical companies and to, to bear on, on developing not just therapeutics, but most importantly, as we announced today, a vaccine. The, the big part of it, too, was not only not only did the, the president uh, introduce uh, uh, Dr. Monsef Slawi, who will be coordinating the public and private research that's done, uh, but also uh, General Gus Perna is is going to oversee uh, the development of, uh, of of these prospective vaccines to scale them up to do everything in our power to meet the president's objective to have a uh, 100 million doses by the fall and 300 million doses by the winter. But it it is um, uh, the, some of the early results from 
from uh, one vaccine continue to be encouraging. But uh, I hope what the American people saw today is the president's just going to continue to bring the, the, the this whole of government, whole of America approach to bring these medicines forward. Well, I have to tell you, if, if you'll permit me a brief moment of uh, editorial analysis, this is phenomenal for the president to put his uh, presidency on the line here, a vaccine for a virus. We don't have many vaccines for many. We don't have one for AIDS yet, for example. We've got flu shots, but no vaccine. This is, to me, this is typical Donald Trump. What you say can't be done, he says it can. And then he sets out about trying to show you how. And somebody asked him today, uh, all of your health experts have said a vaccine, if we get one, is 12 to 18 months away. You're saying now the end of the year. And he said, well, but we've been working on it since January. People have been working on this for half a year already. So I thought that was a great point about this as well. Yeah, it's a remarkable point. And it's you know it, the, the things that um, uh, this administration under the president's leadership have done from from literally before the experts were telling us how serious the coronavirus was or uh, ought to give great confidence to the American people. I mean, here the the president in January, you shut down all travel from China. He stood up the White House Coronavirus Task Force before there was a single case of community transmission in the United States. I mean, the only cases here at that time were people who had come back from China. But to your point, Rush, um, the, as soon as our researchers uh, had essentially the, the, what the genetic code of the coronavirus, they immediately went to work on, on developing a vaccine and literally set a record in 62 days went from initiating research to the first clinical trial. And we're in clinical phase one clinical trials now with other vaccines also being developed. It's, um, um, you know, that uh, President Donald Trump is is a leader that when other people say you can't, uh, he says, uh, he says, stand back um, and <laughs> we're going to prove you wrong. And, um, and th- that's the approach that he's taken to this throughout and the president's decisive leadership, the cooperation of the American people, I, I believe with all my heart, uh, Rush, and I say this to your millions of listeners, because of, of what we've all done together, we've saved lives, we've flattened the curve, and it's one of the reasons why 47 states today have already released formal reopening plans. We're seeing uh, in, you know, encouraging results among states that have already begun to open up uh, 30 days ago, the president directed us to to release the Open Up America Again plan because uh, we we understand that uh, America works when America is working. But uh, we are where we are today because because of the tremendous cooperation of the American people, their care for their neighbors, especially the vulnerable, and the strong leadership of President Donald Trump. Well, I wanted to ask you about these the uh, that we need these CDC guidelines, these new guidelines that were released yesterday. Yeah. Um, the reopening plans across the country. It's a, it's a look. I, I know you don't want to get political in the midst of this national fight to defeat this yeah. thing. But for somebody like me, Mr. VP, it's not. You look at Florida with the job Governor DeSantis is doing. He's just doing a phenomenal job. Governor Kemp is doing a great job. You go to some of these blue states where these governors seem to have a a political desire to inflict pain on your administration rather than get their states. Re- I'm not asking you to comment on that, but how do you, how do you coordinate with these new 
this new guidance from the CDC to reopen when you have some states that aren't interested in it? Well, look, we're coordinating with all the governors. They, as you point out, when we were only 30 days into 45 days to slow the spread, uh, the president said, look, we want states to be ready just as soon as they can safely do it to open up America again. And that's why a a month ago we released those guidelines, the CDC guidelines that came out uh, yesterday and we'll continue to produce in the future. We're going to give confidence to, to businesses and communities to begin to go back to work. But I, I have to tell you that that, um, that, that I, part of what we want to do is make sure the American people know what's going on. As I sit here today, uh, even though we are dramatically increasing testing rush, I mean, because of the public-private partnership the president launched uh, months ago, we just cleared 10 million tests that have been done in this country. We're Phenomenal. We're it's phenomenal. It's yeah, we went when I when the president tapped me to to lead the coronavirus task force rush, we had done 8400 tests total because of the because of the arcane slow system at CDC and public labs. President reinvented testing in America. We've now done 10 million tests. We're we're averaging around the country about 300,000 tests a day. I'm told, and even though we're increasing testing, the number of positive cases of coronavirus are still going down. Yeah, I just I was just talking about that's a, a great phenomenon that's happening. It's an incredible phenomenon, and it's one that we're determined to make sure the American people understand. We're testing more, but it was about three weeks ago that we had about 40,000 cases uh, in a single day. Uh, about 10 days ago, uh, it, was, it was about 35,000. I don't have my charts in front of me, but it's been under 20,000 in recent days. I mean, what the American people have done at great sacrifice, and make no mistake about it, it's this has been tough on families and businesses, large and small, and and communities of faith. But the American people did it and are doing it. And because of that, even though we're testing so much more, the actual cases are coming down. And most importantly, fatalities continue to trend down around the country, even while you have states across America that are that are opening up again. And I think every American should be encouraged by that. We continue to listen to state and local authorities about the way to practice social distancing and and act in a safe and responsible way. But um, but the president knows it. I know it. You know it. Uh, America works when America is working. And the American people want want to get back to work and they want to do that in a safe and responsible way. And it, it's happening, Rush. It's happening all across America as we speak. You are a former broadcast specialist. So when I tell you that we have three minutes that you, you know what that means, I need to ask you about yeah. School uh, in in the fall. Um, there seems to be some confusion over whether we can, whether we will, uh, not just high schools and middle schools, but higher education uh, as well. What can you tell us about the plans for education? Rush, it, Rush we just convened a, a conference call middle of this week with about a dozen of the top uh, university and college presidents in America. And and they all have plans to open up. We're going to be uh, we're going to be meeting with them again in the coming weeks, and and producing their plans and making it available. But I, I want to tell you that as we see the downward trend in cases, 
downward hospitalizations and and uh, and and most especially downward trend in losses. Um, one of the things that I think we can we can continue to to move toward is not just reopening America this summer, but getting getting our schools back going again, higher education and and getting our local schools back to work. And uh, we're going to continue to produce uh, the kind of guidance that's necessary. But um, what I heard this week from you, these university and college presidents is that the plans are already underway. Um, you know, we we talked to. The University of Alabama, Florida, Carnegie Mellon, Purdue University, the leadership, Arizona State, are all putting together plans to safely and responsibly um, get get their campuses back open again and uh, and get the learning going again. And uh, and with that, my my fondest hope is that uh, we we get uh, we get those teams competing again. But uh, everybody's moving in that direction. And uh, again, I just can't say it often enough. It's all a tribute to what the American people have been willing to do to put the health of the most vulnerable among us first. And uh, it's got us on a trajectory where uh, we're going to continue to partner with these schools to make sure they have the testing resources and everything that they need. But um, but uh, I truly do believe in, in, in much of the country um, uh, we'll, we'll be in a place where uh, we'll be back to school come this fall from uh, from elementary to high school to well, you know, higher it's education. A, it's a big deal because parents – uh, if the if the schools aren't open, it's tougher for parents to go back to work, and it's that's a, exactly right. It's a very important and, thing and, to them. And make no mistake about it, um, you know, these major universities oftentimes are the largest employer in their community. Yeah, they employ tens of thousands of people. They're a major part of the of the of the life of of the community and of the state. And uh, but we're working with these universities now. Is it possible there's going to be some areas where your local school is not going to be able to fully reopen because of the the coronavirus continuing to be persistent. You know, we, uh, that's certainly possible. But um, but I, I have to tell you, the trend lines are all encouraging. Uh, and as we scale testing, and as we uh, as we continue to as we continue to protect the most vulnerable among us, particularly uh, seniors with serious underlying health conditions, and uh, that uh, that I think we're going to be able to open up America again and open up our schools again. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you making time for us. It's uh, it's always great to have you here. And continued uh, success with the projects that you have in your portfolio. Get everybody back up and running and have the uh, jobs come back, the economy come back. It's what everybody wants. And we couldn't have anybody better working on it than you, sir. Thank you very much. You're very kind, Rush. Thank you very much. And I uh, look forward to talking again soon. It'll be the case. That's Vice President Mike Pence. See, I told you he's a broadcast pro. Back in a minute. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. By the way, stand by. Uh, let's see, some bites 9 through 13. Got that? All right, my friends, we're back. The last and final busy broadcast hour of Open Line Friday on Friday. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday. Mr. Rebob, one big last chance for you to talk to me. To share with me what's on your mind, what you think about whatever. With a program note, I'll be gone Monday and Tuesday, probably Wednesday. May as well just probably, if I'm here Wednesday, be a pleasant surprise, but don't count on it. 
Yeah, it's once every three weeks. You got to go up the and do the the treatment and the scans and uh, and all that. All those things that I promised you I would not be talking about. I promised you. And I'm not going to turn this show into me being a cancer patient because I've 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 vowed that I don't want that to be what my life is anyway. So. Um. So we got Mark Stein on. Was it Monday? And uh, is it Ken Matthews on on Ken Matthews on Tuesday? And then if uh, Wednesday we may have Pelosi come. You know, Pelosi says that she's going to be president if both Pence and Trump get sick. And the White House has said there is no way that Pelosi is going to become acting president if Trump and Pence come down with the virus. I was going to ask the vice president about that. But I thought, nah, it might be misinterpreted uh, because they're not laughing about any of this. And it's, I mean, this is, you know, this virus thing and people in politics, I've never wanted to run for office. I've never had the desire for whatever it is that makes people want to be in office. I guess um, partially it's power. And I guess that there are people who really believe this business about wanting to help people. Uh, the only, the only potential lure to me in running for office would be the opportunity to implement my agenda, my beliefs, which I think everybody in the freaking country would benefit from. But it's not about it's not about power. And in fact, this virus is exactly one of the reasons I wouldn't want to be in elective office. And yet these people eat it up. I mean, this is, it's a good thing. It takes all kinds. But man, you run for president, you win. Now, you know that's not going to be any walk in the park, and particularly if you're Trump. You know it's not going to be a walk in the park unless you're Obama, the first African-American president, and the media loves you and treats you as a deity. But I'll, I'll guarantee even Obama and Michelle Mybell found a lot to hate about it. They hated living in the White House. Did you know that? They hated it because slaves built it. They didn't like it. You know what else I found out? Tell me, Mr. Snurdly, tell me what you think of this. Michelle Obama refused to allow White House butlers to serve her two daughters wearing tuxedos. Michelle Obama said, I think it was this Netflix Netflix, uh, show of hers that bombed, that she said she didn't want her two daughters growing up to see black butlers serving them in tuxedos. That's not how she wanted them to see uh, or experience life, That that, that it wasn't real. Now, it is... Once they leave the White House, I guarantee you they're not going to have a bunch of butlers serving. Well, <laughs> actually, I can't guarantee that. But but do you understand that? Didn't want her daughters to get the wrong picture of things. That life is not really about having butlers wearing tuxedos. And the majority of them in the White House are African-American. It's tradition. 
and she just didn't want her daughters to uh, experience that or see it. So I don't I don't know what happened. I don't know if, if the butlers didn't serve them, period, or if the butlers had to dress down in T-shirts and jeans. No idea. You hadn't heard that? Well, but I didn't watch any of it, but I read about it. That's how I know about it. You know, why, why watch an hour and a half video when you can read about it for 10 minutes and learn everything there is in it? That's that's my whole attitude on videos. Well, now see, that I don't know. If the butlers have been white, I don't know. It was the way this was written. It was not that they were black. It's that they were wearing tuxedos. That she didn't want her daughters to think that life was about being served by people in tuxedos. Uh, so I. That's all I know. Well, I look, that's how you would raise your kids. But she I know as a parent, you explain this is the White House. These people treat these jobs. It's an honor to have them. They love their jobs. And part of their jobs is bringing you your dinner. They love it. They hope you enjoy it. They hope they can make your life easier. That's how you and I would explain it to you. But look, but yeah, and you treat them with every bit as respect as you would your father and me. Exactly. But we know, we know that that's not how Michelle Obama sees things. She, she's, she's written just like Sotomayor. They, they, they have written about being enraged and angry about various aspects of American culture. And the Obamas, they, they made it abundantly clear that the White House was more a prison to them than it was <laughs> if, if I were ever elected president, you couldn't get me out of the place. It would take my entire four-year term to visit every nook and cranny of the place, to find out everything that had gone on in every nook and cranny of the place. I'd, I'd spend a different day in every room. Not, and I'm not talking about just the residents. I'd spend time in the library, which is surprisingly, folks, by the way, not that big. You'd be amazed. Um, and and I, I just, I would explore the grounds. It's like if I worked at the Capitol, I'd want to go up to the Dome. I would want to know every secret room, every secret staircase, every secret escape route that there is. I'd want to know it all. It would be the honor of a lifetime to live in that place. Because the only way you can do it is be elected president. And I can't relate to people who look at it with any disrespect. Now, I can look at it as a prison. Uh, When you're talking about fame and security and all that, you can't leave because it's unsafe to leave. I understand being frustrated but, but see, I, I look, folks, I have a Ph.D. in Hermit, and I have a master's degree in social distancing. So it wouldn't be a problem for me. But, you know, people like, like Clinton, who can't really live until they get out of the place. You see what happens when he did what he did with Lewinsky coming in there with the, the pizzas and the, and the cigars. Um, 
And Obama, he had to leave the place to get food that he wanted to eat. He had to leave the place to go to fast food burger joints, lest Michelle my bell uh, see him and give him grief over it. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Oh, a couple of interesting things here about optimism and pessimism. Let me do a little quick test. Do you think the worst is behind us in the virus or do you think the worst is ahead of us? Mr. Snurdly. Dawn. Behind us. Okay. And not just the virus itself. Brian, you think the worst is ahead of us or behind us? So my three staff that are here. And, and, and Mike, what do you think? Up in the, what, what, what do you think? Behind us or ahead of us? Worst is behind us. Okay. Well, according to a Washington Post, University of Maryland poll published this week, most Americans agree that it's necessary to wear a mask, stay at home when possible, avoid gatherings, and keep six feet away from others in public. Americans are mostly on the same page about current social distancing measures. But according to a CNN poll, also released this week, 75% of Democrats think the worst is still ahead of us. Only 25% of Republicans think that the worst is ahead of us. Uh, This marked a 15 percentage point drop among Democrats since CNN last questioned them on this in April. It's a 44% drop among Republicans. So the bottom line here is that a vast majority of Republicans think the worst is behind us. The vast majority of Democrats think the worst is ahead of us. So now we dig deep and ask ourselves why. Is it as simple as the left and the Democrats are comprised of majority pessimists? Or is it because they believe the absolute drivel and bilge that their media feeds them every day? Because if they do, that would explain the pessimism. Because I am here to tell you the American mainstream media is portraying the future as potentially the end of the country. I think liberal Democrats are naturally pessimistic. In fact, I think, as you know, I've said countless times, I think pessimism is easy for almost every human being. Being positive and optimistic takes a little work. But pessimism is natural. To think something's not going to work, something's going to fail, something's going to bomb out on you, it doesn't take any work. You don't need books in the library on how to fail, we all know how to do it. Books on how to succeed oftentimes make millionaires out of their authors. Trump is obviously an optimist. He thinks the worst is behind us. And he thinks that the if, if there's a second wave, that we now have enough of a database of uh, knowledge and medical equipment to be able to deal with it much better than the initial uh, outbreak. Now, have you also noticed, maybe I'm alone in this, but as the number of cases is declining, and by the way, I was really happy that Vice President Pence today made mention of this latest phenomena. I didn't know it was in more places than Georgia. In Georgia right now, 
as testing is increasing, the number of cases is staying flat or dropping. Folks, that's, that, that is a phenomenon. That is phenomenal. Because normally, more testing would expose more people who have become infected. We now reach the phase where more testing is not revealing more infections. So the mortality rate is plummeting, meaning the death rate. And the number of people who are actually getting symptoms is plummeting. And the vice president said that it's happening in a lot of places, not just in, uh, in, in Georgia. So while this is happening, have you noticed that despite that, more and more people are starting to wear masks? Government people, scientists, doctors, the white, the light, uh, white lab coat crowd. Now, why would this be? I have a story here of PJ Media. Neurosurgeon says face masks pose serious risk to healthy people. Every Karen, this is, a again, this story written by Megan Fox. I think this is Megan Fox, babe. She does nothing but write stories at PJ Media. Seems like I quote from her four times a day, which is fine. Don't misunderstand. Every Karen on Facebook is shaming her neighbors for not wearing a face mask. You've heard about this, right? Snitches. A bunch of blue state governors are actually asking citizens to snitch on people not wearing masks, not not practicing social distancing, uh, hanging around closer than six feet to people, uh, going places they shouldn't go. And these people have names, nicknames. They're, they're called Karens. And they are deploying on Facebook. They're snitching on people, identifying them on Facebook. And so she writes her, every one of these snitches, every Karen on Facebook is shaming her neighbors for not wearing a face mask. We're being told by governors that if we don't wear the face mask, we're selfish. We're horrible. We have no souls. We want grandma to die a horrible death. Police are tackling people who don't wear the masks properly in the subway. Grocery stores are throwing maskless people out, denying them service. But now there's another doctor weighing in besides Dr. Fauci. Bonafide sex god and ruler of us all. Now, you may not understand her reference there to bonafide sex god, but it's because some idiot female journalist at Vanity Fair or New Yorker, New York, whatever, proclaimed Fauci the sexiest man alive. Not that long ago. So that's her, that's her snide reference that Dr. Fauci is a bonafide sex god. Dr. Fauci, by the way, has also said that face masks are largely security theater and of no use to the healthy. And now comes Dr. Russell Blaylock, a neurosurgeon, has written an editorial addressing healthy people wearing masks to protect themselves from COVID-19. His advice is don't do it. If you're healthy, do not wear the mask. First, he says there is no scientific evidence that it is effective against COVID-19 transmission. Pro-science people should care about this. Now, you realize how many people are going to be floored and stunned by that? Hell, folks, 
You you I I needed some some dental surgery done a couple of weeks ago. Could not enter do anything without wearing a mask. And everybody in there was wearing a mask. And you start telling people that healthy people don't need it, that it's not going to protect you from COVID-19. You're going to upset a whole bunch of apple carts. But Dr. Blaylock is suggesting that it isn't necessary. Dr. Fauci has called it security theater. And yet, as the number of cases is flattening now, here come all these people increasing the wearing of masks in the health community. It's almost as though they don't want you to get the message that the news on the virus might be improving. Welcome back. Open line Friday. Rush Limbaugh, I just got an email from Shannon Bream explaining to me her guest last night on the uh, on her show, the, the Peace Corps guy, which uh, find that bite. It's it's somewhere on the roster. I need to get a phone call, but get that bite. We'll we'll play it again um, in the in the next half hour. In the meantime, Bill in McHenry, Illinois, you're next. I'm glad uh, you waited, sir. Hello. Good afternoon, Rush. And uh, 43 million dittos for you, sir, with uh, prayers and thoughts always. Just, thank you. Uh, Th- thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate that. Y- you bet. I just thought that I asked Bo about, with Attorney General Barr and Mr. Durham still hovering over the target, we're getting more transparency in government with documents being declassified and all that. Can we sit here and predict which one of these rats uh, is going to uh, turn state's evidence or start squealing on the others to uh, to save their own hides? I mean, is there someone we can pick out of these smarmy individuals that might walk the plank? I have been asking a variation of that question for a long time, such as which of these people will ultimately decide they don't want to go to jail to or for James Comey. But, you know, as as time goes on here, I here we go. Optimism, pessimism. I really when I answered this question, honestly, it makes people mad and they start calling me and dumping on me like I'm responsible for it. And uh, this subject came up. Uh, my friend Andy McCarthy was on Fox and asked, was asked, what kind of accountability there's going to be for all of these people. And he said he thinks not much, that there already has been. A lot of them have lost their jobs. A lot of them have been uh, publicly uh, humiliated. But he, he he's not of the opinion that there are going to be uh, actual trials, people. I, I hope. I hope he's wrong. He's making the statement based on experience as a federal prosecutor. You know, as to this business of flipping, you know, traditionally that doesn't happen. Traditionally, the leftists do not flip on each other. In fact, can anybody name for me the tell-all book from the Clinton administration? There was none. Can anybody identify for me the tell-all book from the Obama administration? There isn't one. They just don't do it. They don't break ranks. Now, I do recall having seen in terms of the Durham investigation that uh, one of the deputy uh, directors in the FBI, a guy named James Baker, had flipped and was uh, turning states at whatever the phrase is. Uh, 
unlike you folks, I, I think I think these people need to have armed, jackbooted thugs showing up at their homes at six in the morning with Fox News cameras in position 30 minutes beforehand. I think that the jackbooted thugs need to barge in the front door without warning, not ringing the doorbell, don't give anybody a chance, just give them the Paul Manafort and Roger Stone treatment and drag them out of there at 6 o'clock in the morning in their pajamas because whatever Manafort did and whatever Roger Stone did is nothing compared to what these people have done. I mean, it is in, it's almost incomprehensible the degree to which these people engaged in sedition. This was a coup. It was a non-military coup. It was an effort to thwart a duly constituted election, a fair election. It was an effort to reverse the outcome. And it consisted of a series of crimes piled on top of each other, fueled by lies. It was an attempt to actually create crimes, to trap people into committing crimes where none had occurred. One of the FBI's informants was a guy named Stephen Halper. And he is a former professor at Cambridge in the UK. And he's best buddies with one of these erudite, sophisticated elitists that ran MI5 in the UK. He tried to get hired by the Trump foreign policy team during the campaign. Thankfully, he was rejected. The sole reason that he wanted to get hired was to collude with Russians. Stefan Halper hoped to be part of the Trump Foreign Policy Advisory Administration, not administration, but team. And I guarantee you, if that had happened, he'd have been on the phone with people he knows in Russia. And they, those phone calls would have been wiretapped in cooperation with the FBI. And he would have been talking to Russians about Hillary's emails, whatever it took. It's amazing that didn't happen because this is the kind of thing they were trying with any number of people, not just Stefan Halper. They were trying to get people hired. When they couldn't do that, they tried to get people like like George Papadopoulos to do those kinds of things while they were observing and surveilling. And that bombed out. We, We don't know how close we came. What... On that front, let me ask you to stop and consider something. Keeping in mind at all times, there was never any evidence of anything. There was never any collusion with Russia by Donald Trump or anybody on his team. In fact, I think Donald Trump is the cleanest most investigated person in Washington in history. They've looked at him any number of ways for four years. They haven't found a single thing. But stop and think of this, folks. 
we got three years of lies, innuendo, never-ending leaks multiple times a day, every day, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN. We got Mueller out there with 15 Trump-hating Hillary donors and lawyers doing the investigating. All it would have taken is for Robert Mueller to conclude that there had been collusion. Why didn't he? Do you realize how close? Because if that had happened, if the Mueller report had concluded that there had been collusion, that Trump... And let's go, because collusion itself is not a crime. Let's say that Mueller reported that Trump did indeed work with Russia to sabotage the Clinton campaign. I've I've asked myself since the moment the Mueller report came out, why didn't they? Had they done that, it wouldn't matter whether it was made up or not, because everybody by then already believed Trump had done it. Remember, that had been the news every day for two years. Everybody in this country thought Trump did it. Well, not everybody, but the the people, you know, Democrat voters, some fence sitters, people that pay attention to mainstream media. You couldn't blame them if they believed it. They were hit with it every day, multiple times a day. Anonymous sources from the highest ranking. Intelligence. And you've got Brennan and Clapper on TV every day. Director of National Intelligence, former CIA guy, assuring everybody that Trump did it. Just a matter of time before the investigation nails it all down. So if Mueller had reported that Trump engaged with Russia to sabotage Hillary, vast majority of people would have believed it. I don't think people realize even now how close we came. And had that happened, I shudder to think what would have happened next. But it's almost as big a deal that he didn't report that because everybody thought Trump did it. They had convinced everybody that pays attention to mainstream media that Trump did it, that there had been all this collusion. And so in the aftermath of that, the media doesn't seem angry at any of the sources who assured them that proof Trump had colluded and sabotaged Hillary is working with the Russians was a Russian asset, was a traitor. They were assuring everybody every day. The media doesn't seem upset at their sources. The media all got Pulitzer Prizes for reporting an absolute literal crock of crap. They have made no effort to return the Pulitzers. They haven't. They haven't told their, their viewers and readers that they're ashamed. They haven't apologized for getting this story so dramatically wrong. And the reason for that is, is that it wasn't a story. They didn't get it wrong. It was an attempt. It was a coup that didn't work. 
and everybody was in on it. The anonymous sources, the former high-ranking government officials of the intelligence community, they're all in on it. Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Struck Strokes, Mark Page, McCabe, they're all in on it. It's amazing to me these people weren't able to bring it off. But Russia didn't happen. How could they? Well, none of it happened. And yet, look at the three years. It's still ongoing. You get Democrat after Democrat on television every day, every night, still saying the Russians meddled in the 2016 election. They hacked the DNC server. We got to be really on our guard for the election in 2020. I think it's one of the most amazing things that they did not pull the trigger and claim. Mueller and his investigators did not pull the trigger and go ahead and claim they had evidence that Trump had indeed worked with Russia to sabotage Hillary. Anyway, I got to get a brief time out. Time just flying by here, but we'll continue after this. Right on, right on. Welcome back. El Rushbo and the EIB Network. And a reminder, I'm out next Monday and Tuesday, probably Wednesday as well. Um, we've got Mark Stein on Monday and Ken Matthews on Tuesday and Hope and Pray on Wednesday. Folks, a young lady in this audience learned the hard way the IRS continues to be the world's most powerful collection agency, even now. Even during the coronavirus, the IRS is out there. This woman's name is Jackie. As I say, she's in the audience. She had gone through a very painful divorce and was just moving on with life when she got her first notice from the IRS. It seems that her ex-husband built up quite a large debt with the IRS and that she ended up being on the hook for it. Now, she made her own attempt to explain the debt was not hers, but she got nowhere with that. Jackie did not have those kinds of funds. She didn't have the money to pay the debt. She knew she was up against a formidable collection effort at the IRS. But because she's a listener here, she knew about Optima Tax Relief. And that's what she did. She called them for help. And you know what? It was a very wise move on her part. The experts at Optima have resolved more than a billion dollars in tax debt for their clients. So Optima's team went to work. They stepped in between Jackie and the IRS. It's the first thing that happens. You don't talk to the IRS anymore if you hire Optima. They do. They have experience at it. They know how to do it. And therefore, you can't commit a process crime, even though the IRS doesn't set you up for those kinds of things. But they do it. That's what you hire them to do. And they negotiated a deal that ended up being thousands of dollars less than what they were originally demanding that she pay. Optima's tax professionals are standing by to help you if you're having your own issues with the IRS. They're ready to help you today if you want. Even during these uncertain times, you can do it all online or you can do it over the phone. Call Optima. It's a free confidential consultation. You tell them the problem. That's how you start. The number is 800-973-7700. 
Optima Tax Relief, 800-973-7700. Okay, so earlier today, we played the following soundbite from Shannon Bream's uh, show last night on the Fox News Channel. She had a guest, the Peace Corps Medical Director, Steve Weinberg. And I used this bite as an example of how people will disqualify others from having opinions that are worthwhile if they are not men of science, if they're not uh, doctors or what have you. So here to start it, this is the I want to play a little bit of what Rush Limbaugh had to say about this today, about how people are feeling like the goalposts keep moving. Here's what he said. So we had to flatten the curve and follow the data of flawed models. We need more testing, so we got more testing. It's not enough. We need even more. Now that's not enough. We need antibodies. Oh, all that doesn't mean anything anymore. Now we need a vaccine. There may never be a vaccine. All right, doctor, I know that you want to keep us safe, but you can hear the frustration in his voice. I certainly could. I love Rush. He's the best conservative journalist probably ever. I looked today on his bio. I can't find out where he went to medical school. Uh, not sure he has a medical degree. And the goalposts have moved, Shannon. What we've done is we've learned a lot more about the disease. All right, so he was defending the goalpost moving. When I played the bite, I was a little snarky because the guy said, okay, well, yeah, he's a great conservative, but I don't see that he's got a medical degree. Of course, this is how leftists, not even just leftists, how people, I, I, I told you it was all part of a monologue where the left doesn't care to win debates. They don't care to prevail. They don't even think they should have to face opposition. They just quiet it. Well, I got his note from Shannon at about 10 minutes after 2. So 50 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago. She said, hey, Rush, the weeks are much more entertaining and informative when you're on. The doctor we had on last night really is your biggest fan. He did run the Peace Corps for Bush 43. He pulled it as far to the right as he could. I think he was just trying to be cheeky with the comment that you don't have a medical degree. But he, he started his remarks praising you immensely. He would love to connect if you have any desire. The guy's a diehard conservative. He credits you with much of that. Not only an MD, he's a JD and a professor. And he's a legitimate Texan. He's a good egg. His name is Steve Weinberg. You continue to be in our daily prayers with Shannon Bream. So, well, I'm glad she sent me the note. Did, did I sound overly snarky of the guy? Was originally not. Okay, good. Uh, let's see. Well, you know, that's true. One of the reasons, one of the reasons that Mueller could not conclude that Trump had colluded is that all of these guys are testifying under oath that they never saw any evidence of it. So they shot themselves in the foot. But when you're under oath, you're under oath. Okay, grief, brief, grief, whatever. Time out. Back in a moment. As always, immense appreciation for you being with us today, folks. The um, computer models are estimating now 43.5 million people tuning in each day. And, and actually... Records, audience ratings, records are being set. Uh, it's we're not allowed to talk about it specifically, but it's it's amazing. Thank you. We'll see you next week sometime. Adios. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 